Good morning. Did that work? This is easier than CUC is to get quiet on Sunday morning. So. It's because the women aren't here. Wait a minute. I didn't say that. Tom said that. I did. All right. Our speaker this morning is Jim Gebhardt. Jim was raised in Rutherford, New Jersey. He married Beverly, his high school sweetheart, and they've been married for 48 years. Got two children, uh, Jeannie, who, uh, who is a human resource manager for a cardiologist, and Jim Jr., who's president of a local body and restoration shop. They've lived in Roswell and Alpharetta for 40 years. And uh, Jim said he has been a member at RUMC predating Malone by two years. So he's been here a long time. How old is this guy? Jim's a uh, past member of the Board of Stewards and Board of Trustees, and he's been an usher for almost 40 years. Uh, he says he'll give us more information as he shares his talk, but a couple of questions. Have you ever been into a Hyundai dealership? Have you ever been in one? You've seen them. We'll hear more about that in just a moment. And have you seen the vintage cars at our reunions and events here? You'll hear more about that. Jim, looking forward to hearing you. Good morning. Morning. All right. How many of you watched the game? All right. And and you're all awake, which is amazing. Yeah, I got two hours sleep too. But uh, it was it was a great game, great series. And uh, I think Smoltz is what really made the series. It was play by play. Probably I learned more about pitching and anticipating what batters were going to do through that than any other game I think I'd ever watched. So it was like having a Brave there. And several Braves, ex-Braves, were playing too, which was... And, and a lot of them did surprising things, even when the cards were stacked, you know. So anyway, I thought it was a great, great thing. All right. Uh, I'll tell you this up front. So uh, a year ago, we were asked to do our faith commitments. Do you remember that? We're going through that right now. But well, one of my faith commitments was to do this. So this has been a year in planning. Uh, it's it's not going to take a year for me to get through it, I hope. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, this is a story of four books, and these four books were the most significant, uh, had the most significant impact on my life, and you'll see it. Um, I'm a visual guy. I'm in the car business. Everybody looks at stuff visually. I'm also in the design business, and that's another visual thing. So if I can keep you from going to sleep, there's going to be a lot of visual stuff here. Um, the four books, original Bible, you always bring yours. It's a little, little worn, but there it is. And it was given to me in 58, so that's a long time ago. Uh, this book, which you'll get a kick out of seeing, and I'll describe it in a minute. Uh, some of you should know what this is. Okay, Boy Scout. And when we went through confirmation, this is what we were given. It was a hymnal, Methodist hymnal. So that was, that was what we got confirmation. I got that in 60, 62, I think. 62. Anyway, still got the books. All right, let's see if I can make this thing work the way it's supposed to. I got that last. Well, there's the four books. And anybody wants to see these books later, I'd be happy to, to show them to you. So the Bible, 
Now let's see if Mandy get my little light going here. Uh, all right, here's a question for you. You're going to learn more about me than you ever knew and probably ever wanted to know. But anyway, uh, uh, how many people in here um, have been foster parents? How many of you are adopted parents? How many of you are adopted? Me. Okay. 18 months, my sister, different family, 18 months. Big deal. Uh, and I remember, still remember, when my parents first told me about it, I was maybe three, four, just old enough to to understand. And they said, uh, you may hear somebody give you a hard time about that you know, when you're in school. And I said, just remember, anybody that wasn't adopted, the parents had no choice about what they got. I mean, you were there, and that's what they were stuck with. <laughs> still in my mind. But at that time, uh, you didn't have supermarkets, right? It, that's an old term today, but we didn't even have those. Grocery stores. And the way they explained to me, so it was just like a grocery store. You know, we saw a selection, and we picked the one we wanted, and that was you. So it was pretty cool. Okay, uh, so that kind of starts off. And, and one thing I think if you meet many adopted people, I think they tend to be overachievers. They drive real hard. And uh, I can tell you adopted parents are different than regular parents because they've raised somebody that wasn't theirs. Okay, this is the, the cover leaf. This shows you, 1958, a long time ago. All right, this is what I grew up in. And uh, I had a chance to go back to the old hometown and take a look at it. What's kind of neat today, of course, with Google, you can look up your old house and take a picture of it. It's amazing. I don't know how they do all that. But anyway, you see the car, the truck going around with the camera. It's amazing. Anyway, I was there, looked at it. And I lived in this house from uh, when I was one through uh, 18, went off to college. And uh, it's it's a Dutch colonial, it's a small, you know, we, we think about property. This is in New Jersey. Um, this was 50 by 100. I mean, that was your typical lot, or smaller. But anyway, that's where we grew up. Um, all right, church number one, okay? And this is really the start of my drug problem. And you've heard other people say this, too, because this is the building I got drugged to, literally, all the time. <laughs> and uh, uh, we had... My scout troop was in there. Uh, we had uh, youth programs, and it, it isn't a peanut butter. It was JIF. Anybody know what that is? It was Junior Youth Fellowship and then MYF, which was, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, we went through all that. So in the, you know, junior high school, high school era, um, and I met my wife in that at 11 years old. But because it wasn't Alabama, no, never mind. Okay. Uh, both my parents were very involved in the church, and they were in the men's club, and my mother was in the women's club. Uh, he was a Mason, and she was an Eastern star. He was a Mason until he passed 50-some years. Uh, and even three feet of snow wouldn't keep us from going to church. It was like the most important thing of the week, no question. And I can't tell you how many Saturdays I had to scrub the car to go to church. I mean, a little different today, but anyway. <laughs> Not, not too many clean cars out there. But anyway, um, my mother had been a one-room school teacher, and she had all 12 grades in one room, and there's not many of those anymore. Um, and my dad uh, worked lifelong on the railroad. Uh, his father, my grandfather, I never had a chance to meet, but he uh, he was killed on a railroad. He was saving kids' life. And uh, the deal then, he got the Carnegie Medal posthumously. And the thing on the railroad then, and you got to remember what the railroad was like, in the teens and the 20s and 30s, up through the 50s and maybe even the early 60s, 
It was like the airline industry today. It was a premier job. They worked through depressions. They worked through wars. They worked constantly. And uh, they worked 12-hour shifts, 16-hour shifts. They really worked long hours. It's not the same today, but still very highly regarded business then. Anyway, he uh, quit high school and went to work for the railroad at 12 and uh, as an apprentice uh, machinist sweeping floors. And uh, over the years, he was promoted, became a master mechanic, a master machinist, and then uh, roundhouse foreman uh, later in life. And uh, I uh, was taught how to run a locomotive at 12, and I ran them. Uh, the hostler in a roundhouse pulls the engines back and forth on the turntable and all that, so it was kind of neat. And then when I was in uh, senior high school summer, and my summers in college, I worked as a fireman engineer. So I could run freight trains. I did run many passengers. But anyway, I still get a rush at crossing. So that's what it all comes down to. All right, this is the church. Uh, now we think about our stained glass windows. This was a big deal when I was growing up as a kid. Of course, they didn't have the productive, protective glass in front of it. But those were beautiful stained glass windows. And that church went way back uh, in the early 20s. All right, this. some of you will remember this. How many of you remember, you have to go way back now, your mother going to the grocery store and coming home every week or every couple weeks with an encyclopedia? Any of you remember that? Okay. Well, they were giving them away, right? You bought so much food, they gave you an encyclopedia. Well, uh, I, was a, I was a late reader. I didn't really start getting into uh, reading a lot until uh, end of my second, second grade or early third grade, but when these books came, I just jumped into them. I really, uh, the way this was put together, it's called Pictured Knowledge. So it was really set up for, for young people, for kids. And uh, it went through all kinds of different things and explained it in ways that kids could understand it in a lot of pictures, so on and so forth. And you're probably wondering, why does Jim have this old encyclopedia in there? Okay. Well, you'll understand now. Okay. So got this thing, and I was uh, maybe eight, whatever, seven. And I looked in there, and there's, a, there's an article on an automobile. And I said, well, that's really interesting. You know, and I was kind of a car guy. My first word was car. I've got two grandsons, and their first word were ball, both of them. And they're ball players, and they're really good at it. But mine was car. It was always car. So I, I don't know who to blame for that. But anyway, uh, in this, there was a breakdown of how a new car is designed and the process. And I was sold, absolutely sold, at eight or nine. And I'm going to walk you through this. You can see the book later. Uh, but I kept this book ever since because it guided me in, in what I was going to do. So you see the guy doing a, a sketch. I like that. Now you see the clay models um, and the full-size drawing on the wall in the lower left and how the clay models are developed. This was uh, 19. These were developed in like 52. Uh, this was a 55 car. So, you know, it was, I might have been eight when I saw it. Then you see the interior and the details and drawings of the taillights on the left and how they split models on the clay model. You know, they didn't make a full clay model. It was always a half model. An interior buck where they do the interior things. And then they start making a steel buck and, and building a prototype there, doing some of the jig work. And you can see how they form the individual panels and structure it. And then the completed car. Now, this is a 55 Plymouth, but it was a really big change. You saw both Dodges and Plymouth in that. Big change in the in the Chrysler Corporation when these were developed. So I came out of that. I mean, I was pumped. So at 10 years old, I decided I was going to be an industrial designer because that's what these guys were. And I said to myself, and I told my parent, parents, I said, look, 
Every single thing is design. Everything. So if I got a job as a designer, there's always going to be work. You know, it's kind of like an undertechnologist. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I wrote to GM Ford and Chrysler, and I received letters back from them. And I still have the letters that suggested courses and suggested schools. And you know, if you've really got the talent to do this, this is what you need. To do. So I planned my high school courses in math, art, drafting, and engineering, and I aced almost all of them. Not everyone, math, but anyway, I, I got through all of it. Um, then I applied uh, and was accepted at three universities that had major design departments, and that was uh, Bridgeport, Cincinnati, and Syracuse. Um, but don't let me get ahead. Uh, I, I need to get back to where I was in grammar school so we don't get too far away. All right, Boy Scout manual. First of all, how many of you are Boy Scouts? There you go. Look at that turnout. That's amazing. Now, here's another thing. It's not related, but it's just kind of interesting. How many of you were paper boys? Look at the mix. Almost the same number. All enterprising people that learned a lot about other people and how to deal with people when you were 10, 11 years yeah. old. And it never leaves you. You know, I collected three times every week, so I made sure I got my collections done. That was a big deal. Okay. So here's another thing. Uh, how many of you remember Indian Gods? Anybody have anything to do? In okay. There's a few of those. That's pre-Cub Scout, pre-Boy Scout. That's when fathers and sons in our town, we met in basements. And we did things like make tie racks and bird houses and stuff like that. But it was a good father-son kind of thing. We have one camping trip. Uh, but it's things you, you don't forget. So during the scouts, uh, my time with scouts, uh, let's see. I don't know if this, there we go. Um, I uh, got involved in leadership. I became a patrol <coughs> leader and assistant senior patroller, senior patroller, junior assistant scoutmaster. I was a camp counselor for two years. Um, got involved in a whole bunch of things. How many of you that were scouts ever went to a jamboree? Every four years, there's a national jamboree where, where troops come from all over the country. Used to be in different locations. It's pretty much standardized now in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, but really neat, um, neat experience. Um, in 64, I went, and uh, it's kind of timely now, that both presidential candidates came, and they, they would do that now. Uh, it was a different kind of presidential campaign. But anyway, we, it, was, it was still controversial because Goldwater was running against Johnson, and they both came in by a big jet helicopter, different days. But anyway, it was, it was very interesting. And of course, Goldwater wanted to bomb. And he was the hawk. He really wanted to end. Johnson didn't, but wound up doing it anyway, as, as we all know. But uh, that, was, that meant a lot to me. But all right, how many of you remember the TV show Gunsmoke? Okay. Who was the sponsor? Chevrolet. Big time. That was that was their big Sunday night promotion. But anyway, here we are, Valley Forge. A lot of activities for the kids. Came back to our little tent, little baker's tent. And the tent mate and I just kind of crashed. We'd been running around all day. All of a sudden, the, the flap snaps open. And two of the biggest guys I've ever seen in my life walk in with the tent over their shoulders. And that was Dan Blocker and Lauren Green. And they were this far away. It was Never forgot. But anyway, those are the kinds of things that you remember when you're in scouts. Uh, you have special experiences. So, Okay. Uh, I earned an eagle. I uh, was 15. Uh, how many of you are eagles? There you go. Uh, it's a small percentage in overall, but it's, it's a major first accomplishment. And uh, a lot of people rank that with confirmation. They really do, you know, if they can get that time. Okay. Um, I joined scouts again uh, with my son. Uh, as a temporary scoutmaster. This was, I don't know, 15, 
20 years ago. And they asked me if I'd help out for a couple months because I was an Eagle. 11 years later, uh, I was, you know how that goes with volunteer work, you know, here. But I had a great time. I think I had more fun the second time. Went went to another jamboree as a staff member, which was fun. But uh, my son was awarded Eagle Scout here with Malone. And uh, the Boy Scout principles still hold true today and are a big part of my life. So, I mean, just, you can't read it from there. I can barely read it from here. A um, couple things. These are kind of timely, so I think it's worth reading. Uh, duty to country, okay? In a week, we'll know how this all comes out. Uh, baby in the cradle, boy or girl at school and at play, man or woman at work um, or caring for family uh, at, or at leisure and the family, all American citizens. Citizenship is your privilege, your right. No one can take it away from you. You're a citizen now, this very minute. But because America so generously bestows its citizenship upon you, you owe it to your country to be, become a good citizen, to do your best to become a true American boy who will eventually grow into a true, upright American man. Not, not wait until you grow up to become a great man, but to be a great boy right now. The way to become a good citizen is to first to know and then to do. America is a land, a people, and a way of life. By getting to know your country, you will come to love it. By helping other people at all times, you probably remember that, um, by working with them, and you will come to know the kind of people that Americans are, and will learn to get to know the kind of people that, uh, I'm sorry, and along well with them. By studying the past, by learning about American way of life, you will become an informed citizen who will know what is needed to keep America great. There's a phrase. You've heard that. I'm not biased. Hey, the best men win. It's, that's all. Okay. Oh, sorry. That's churches. Anyway. Okay, Scout is reverent. I told you we weren't going to forget this. Uh, take a Lincoln penny out of your pocket and look at it. What do you see on it? Um, just above Lincoln's head are the words, In God We Trust. Twelve little letters on our humblest coin. Not only as individuals, but as a nation, too, we are committed to live and work in harmony with God and with his plan. Most great men in history have been men with deep religious faith who have shown that their convictions in deeds. Washington knelt in the snow to pray at Valley Forge. Lincoln always sought divine guidance before making an important decision. Eisenhower you see how dated this is. Eisenhower prayed to God before taking his oath to office as President of the United States. These men had many things in common. Love of the out-of-doors, human kindness, and an earnest vigor in working with God in helping make a better world. You are reverent as you serve God in your everyday actions and are faithful in your religious obligations as taught you by your parents and your spiritual leaders. All your life, you will be associated with people of different faiths, in America, we believe in religious freedom. That is why we respect others whose religion may differ from ours, although for reason of conscience, we may not agree with them. Okay, I think 1963 is pretty cool. All right, now we got a little change here. Life changes. Uh, going back to, to college and so on and so forth, this is church number two. This is Ridgewood Church in Ridgewood, New Jersey. I don't know if anybody's lived up there or seen this church, but it's right on the square, very nice church. After a very long freshman year away from home with my girlfriend, I married my freshman summer in college, 
and I've been married, as you heard earlier, 48 years, which is amazing. But anyway, uh, my daughter Jean was born and attended night classes with me, so she went to college twice. She was on my back when I went to school, and then she went later on. Uh, and we had an interesting grading system then, watching the time. Uh, during the Vietnam era, we had pass or die. You've heard of <laughs> you, you've heard you've heard pass or fail, right? That's kind of been the rogue the, the rogue thing a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah, literally, they would take you out of school if you got a D. Expect a knock on the door and happen to the guy in the next room, and, and one D. You know that's all it took, and you lost your college deferment, and it was tough time. And he got drafted, went for his physical, and. Uh, and he was scared to death, as you might imagine. And uh, when he went for his physical, they uh, saw the army guy came in and you know was talking to him. Then a marine uh, sergeant came in and walked down the line. He said, "You, you, 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 step forward. You're marines." And that's a three-year commitment. And he didn't know, you know, what that meant. So he said to him, "What's this mean? What, you know, what's this mean to me?" He said, "Well, you ever seen a war movie, son?" I said, "Yeah, I've seen a war movie. Do you ever see?" All the soldiers running over the back of a guy in a barbed wire fence, that's the Marine. They were there first. They cleared the way. I mean, that's what the Marine guy said. So he came home. He was scared to death. Anyway, uh, so that was, that was a very difficult time. Those of you that were around then, you know how, time, how difficult that was. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, deferments kind of came and went. You had, first of all, it was uh, sole surviving son. You don't go. You went. Then it was, uh, if you were married, you didn't go, but then you went. If you had a, a child, you didn't go, but then you went. And uh, it, well, those were all the different, you had to have passing grades. Um, and then they had this thing called the lottery. And they only had it for like two years. Um, and I'd already talked to a naval air recruiter, and I was, and he said, don't sign up now. If you get draft notice, come see me, you know, so on and so forth. And I was kind of pumped. I'm a planes, trains, and automobile guy. So anyway... I, I thought I would do that. Uh, so on TV, big tumbler, and the guy pulls a number. I had the first number. My birth date was the very first one picked. I turned the TV off, and I said, I call a Navy guy tomorrow. Phone rings. It's a father-in-law. He said, no, no, you don't understand. I said, what? what I understand. I'm going to, going to war. He said, no, they picked the last number first. Oh. So at 365, it's red on my draft card. The last five numbers are red. You know, they said, you don't go unless the cabinet goes. <laughs> the other thing you have to remember, when you interviewed for a job then, it wasn't what was your grade level, what school you went to. The first thing they asked you, what's your draft number? They wouldn't interview you if you had a number that was 200 or less. Wouldn't even interview you. So it was, you know, a little difficult. Okay, so before uh, I uh, graduated... Uh, I obviously always wanted to design cars. That's what I wanted to do. You get stuff in your head. So I was set up for student intern my junior year with General Motors, and I was, I was excited about that, and I was going to be in Detroit for the summer. And uh, about three weeks before I was set to go, they canceled the program first time in history because it was 1970, the economy was in, not in good shape, and the big car companies were really struggling. So that was disappointing. Uh, I was still running the locomotive, so I couldn't be that disappointed. But anyway, uh, the following year, 71, I expected to interview because GM, Ford, and Chrysler came to the design school to interview. And all three companies canceled their trips. So I'm like, okay, 
Well, I have to do something else now. So this little divine intervention here. There's a couple different points this is going to occur. So I went to talk to my uh, uh, the chairman of the design department. There were 60, 62 kids in our class. Seven finished in four years. That's pretty high attrition rate. And some of them finished later, but that's all I got through in four. And he was good. He got me, had me set some jobs for me during the breaks and so on and so forth. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, if I were you, I would uh, get your portfolio finished early because everybody would wait until the last minute, like students do in May. And I would go down to New York. It's the, it's the, the hub of industrial design other than auto design, which is Detroit. And he said, I'll make a couple calls. You know, I know some people down there, but, you know, just do what you need to do. And this is amazing. You would never think about doing this today. There are no headhunters then. And if you had a headhunter out there, they wouldn't talk to a graduating student. They would only talk to senior or, or experienced people. So I took my portfolio case, which is not this big, and um, got on to New Haven and went to uh, Penn Station and went to the first hotel, had a pocket full of quarters, flip open to the page for industrial design, start calling. Total, total and absolute cold calls. No appointments at all. And my, my first trip down there, I had four interviews. The second time I went down, I had three more. Got two jobs, which is amazing. Now, remember, I had a kid to, to feed. I was married, not the average student. And I actually wore a suit, which was not something that most college, that was during the college student revolts and all that stuff. And I think they were surprised to see anybody that wore a suit, quite honestly, and had hair cut. Of course, they didn't have this thing. But um, anyway, I wound up with a, with a job and uh, went to work for Henry Dreyfus Associates. Now, maybe some of you have heard Dreyfus, but you're probably thinking of the fund. This is a different one. Dreyfus and Industrial Design are very famous for Founding fathers of industrial design. Some of these names you may remember. Raymond Lowy, Avante, Studebaker, a lot of, lot of neat cars. Um, Walter Dorwan Teague, another big name. And Norman Belgettis, another name. Those are the four founding fathers. And I, I interviewed at all the places, and, and Dreyfus offered me a job, which was just unbelievable at the time. So off I go to New York. And when I went to New York, I, I rented a place or in um, Ridgewood, New Jersey, and went to this church. And this pastor, and I kind of use this term lightly, um, fire and brimstone light. Okay? <laughs> but remember, New, New Jersey, um, very traditional church services. The buildings are very traditional. They're long meeting house type designs. And uh, so I think about architecture. But anyway, um, nice, really nice guy. And for some reason, he took me under his wing and within, I ushered of course at that church right away, but um, Within just a few months, he had me on the administrative board, which is the equivalent to the trustees. And I was the secretary. I had terrible handwriting. But anyway, uh, and all you had was typewriter then, so and I didn't type well. But anyway, I had that position for two years, uh, and it was uh, it was kind of thrilling to be involved in that. So go through that. Uh, great time at Dreyfus. I was there six years, advanced rapidly, and I had a chance to uh, come to Atlanta. Mead uh, interviewed me, and I came to Atlanta. One of the things they told me as I did my graduating uh, college interview, where all the, the professors review your work and so on and so forth, at the end of it, they sat me down. You kind of wonder what they're going to say. They're going to say, you're a very good designer, but you're not going to be a designer very long. I'm going, wow, all this work, and that's what they're telling me. He said, no, you're going to manage. You're going to manage. Within 10 years, you'll have your own design group. And I'm going, okay. It was, I had led design teams on team projects, and we all always <coughs> did very well, but... Um, after six years at Dreyfus, going from an apprentice board designer to their senior board designer, 
I had an opportunity to become a design director. So Mead hired me down here. In that period of time, uh, I designed uh, displays for soft drink skin care and oil companies and got it at the very beginning of all the convenience store conversions. Remember all that? Used to have gas stations with, with bays, which don't exist anymore. In fact, I just tore one of the only ones left in town there. Um, and during that time, I had 13 design patents and three process patents. Mead had a very aggressive legal uh, patent attorney group, and they would uh, pursue all that. Also, they uh, asked me and, and helped pay for an MBA at Georgia State. And uh, most designers don't do that. It's unusual. A lot of engineers don't do that, but designers particularly. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, about that time, my daughter was married here in the church uh, by Dick Dunn, maybe a name some of you remember. Okay. Then um, I joined uh, Miller's L, which was a large design firm here in Atlanta, and I came in as their design director and uh, developed what I'm going to show you today, which is an on-site CAD development process. You've heard me say that I design, some of you have heard me say that I design car dealerships. Well, there's only about six companies in the country that do that. It's a very small niche. Niche works, incidentally. Find something that nobody else does, and you should be okay and do a good job of it. As long as you've got the right niche. Right, right. <laughs> That's true. So, anyway, I developed this process uh, to to renovate dealerships, and it was tied to the fact that the dealers I knew were always so time-constrained. They're really nice people. You know, the community always comes to them for donations. They, they're just car people. They're really good people. But they don't have any time. And when it came time for them to upgrade their facilities, they wanted to be involved, but didn't have time to be involved. So... In a traditional process, any architects in the room? That's important. Okay, oops, lose some juice there. That was a light. Um, and that's okay. So, um, yeah, I can do that if I need to. So, we brought the uh, design to the uh, dealership. Now, how many of you have had a kitchen redesign the last 10 years? Almost every kitchen designer now will bring their computer to your house and show you a walk through the space. Well, in 1987 and 88, Nobody had any idea that that could be done in a dealership. So what we did is we took entire base stations in a trunk of a car and went to the dealership and designed it because laptops didn't exist. You know, So we learned that, and as the technology improved and the computers got better, we were able to take laptops and portable printers, and then we could tie into the printers that were in the dealership, so that's kind of how we work today. But we can take any building, say up to sixty or 70,000 square feet, and in two days... We'll create existing condition plans, like plans for this whole building, and then the new plans, and in two days have the dealer approval on the on way to go forward, which, you know, after doing it years and years and years, we've got it perfected, and we can do it so cost-effectively, nobody can compete with us, so that's kind of fun. Um, we developed client image programs for Chevrolet, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, a couple of names you don't remember, uh, GM Canada, Ford, Ford of Canada, BMW, Mitsubishi, Hyundai, Chrysler, and Chrysler International. Done stores in Australia, I've done it in Korea, I've done it in Japan, did a lot in Puerto Rico. Uh, um, and so what I've got here, just people always say, well, what's that? How's that work? This is the, the church. Okay. Here's a typical uh, renovation project, very briefly, that we did for Hyundai. This is a 60s Volkswagen building. This is the typical dealership that was done for Volkswagen in that period of time. So first thing we'll do, we'll go in, we'll do a set of drawings, and we'll generate a rendering. That's the same store. Take another look. Okay? Didn't change the outside walls, at least the footprint of the building. And then we'll stay involved in the project till it gets completed. 
So if, if we're involved and we work with the local architects and designers and construction, uh, it'll wind up coming out the way we designed yeah. it. So if you've ever been in a Hyundai dealership, we've done all 500 and, uh, 950 of them. We did those in a five-year period. And no small firm, and we're literally a small firm, but I had 18 architects working for me in the field. And I'm proud of the fact that in one two-week period at the peak of this rollout, we did 38 stores in two weeks. So um, that was pretty cool. You've seen this store. Uh, well, what happened was I, I was with Miller's Elf for 17 years, and I tried to buy this part of the business from them three times, and they would never sell it. The, this design business, like a lot, a lot of other things, is peaks and valleys. And if it looked like it was going to be good, they wouldn't sell it. Well, it looked like it was going to look, not be so good, and they called me and asked me if I was still interested. And I said, yeah, okay, I am. If the price is right, he said, we'll make the price right. Wow. Yeah. You worked there 17 years, you still don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, so in talking with him, he said, we're going to sell you the business for $20,000, and we're going to give you the computers and the furniture and the whole nine yards. And I said, that sounds pretty good. Now, over the years, in 17 years, I'd been given a lot of stock options, which I had not exercised. And I was talking with the CFO. So I said, well, this all looks really good, Jim. Uh, I think now's the time I'd like to exercise those stock options. And he just about fell out of his chair because I was still an employee and I had the right to do that. But if I hadn't said it then, I never would. So he turned around in his chair and started messing around with things. He turned around and he says, okay, we'll give you a check for 45000 So that was the seed money to start the business. And then he said, because we want to subcontract some of this work back to you, you can stay here for the next six months. We'll give you office space. And when you leave... Take all your furniture with you. So they really set me up. I had a good experience there, and that's when we got started. I watched my time here. So I opened two businesses in 2001. I always wanted to be an old car dealer because I've been fooling with cars forever. And here's another secret. If you're going to open your own business, open two. <laughs> Trust me, open two. If you got all your eggs in one basket and the basket breaks, you've got nothing. And the other thing is don't open a business in a rented building, a leased building. You need to buy the building. It's not that much to put a deposit down, and your rent's going to be about the same as a payment. And then you got something that both of them go away. So that's what we did. Launched both of those businesses. Um, we've designed, over the, this period of time, 280 Circuit City stores. That was a challenge. Um, 50 Sears stores. Try and do existing conditions on 200,000 square feet. It takes two teams of three, 10 days, and it's not what you want to do. They're totally worn out. 1,200 Suzuki dealerships, and as I mentioned before, 950 of the... Uh, Hyundai stores, and 100 Volvo Mac stores. I'm going to show you one of those in a little bit. This is a typical Volvo Mac dealership. You don't think about truck dealerships unless you're a truck driver or own trucks. This is kind of the metal building that you typically see. This is how we redesigned it. didn't change the building. We put a new fascia on it, added some features, and that's how it came out. And we stayed close to it. And those are their new graphics, and you'll see that. there's. Uh, we've done about 100 in the States, and we just got the Mexico contract. There's 50 54 of them to be done there. We just did three of them, and they're going to be returned in December. So that's where that business is going. It's worked out pretty well. All right. You knew we were going to get to this, okay? Uh, at the same time, we opened the antique car business, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. We've done, uh, we sell about 25 cars a year, about two a month, two, maybe three, sometimes none, sometimes one. And we have a wide variety from the 30s to the early 70s. And what's nice about having two businesses in one building they do work on one, and then somebody calls about a car, and I can do that. And, you know, you never get bored. You can't get bored. So here's a couple of the cars. Now, these, this was restored in our own shop. So was this one. I have to do Mustang for a couple of the Mustang guys here. Um, had Corvettes. There was a 68 Camaro. Again, painted in our shop. Another one. Another Mustang. Nice 396 Chevelle. We got one of those in there now. 
Camaros, you can't find enough of them. And this is kind of cute. We've done several of these, and you'll see some further on. This is a 52 Bel Air hardtop. And we also, in the body shop, it's body, it, we purchased a body shop a couple years later, like I needed another business. But um, the guy that was doing our work at the time, he's doing 60% of our work, he called me and he said, hey, our building's going to be for something. He was leasing. He said, you have a chance you can buy that building, right? And if you buy it and give me a good rent deal, I'll give you a great deal on body and paintwork. I mean, it's warped logic, but... Yeah, okay, that sounds not too bad. So three weeks before closing, after a year of negotiation, he comes in and he says, I've decided to get out of the body shop business, and I'm about to buy a building I don't need and obligate myself. And he said, no, no, no. I'm going to sell you the business. I said, I don't need another business. I got, you know, two. <coughs> so no, you'll want to buy the business. So anyway, for the same magic number, $20,000, I bought his business. The booth, the frame machine, computers, furniture, the whole nine yards. And in the mix of business over there, we do 60% late model repairs, like your car that gets dinged in a parking lot or something. Um, and then 30% old cars, and I get 10% of the 30%. And the last part's kind of interesting. 10% is movie cars, and we've done a lot of movie cars. Next couple cars are Fast and Furious and Need for Speed cars. If you've ever seen those movies, you may recognize these cars. Wow. And we did three of these. There were three in the movies. One was real. The other two were fakes. And they give us no time to do things. We'll have a car carrier come in with five Crown Vicks, and they're taxi cabs. I said, tomorrow, these are police cars. So we'll work all night, make them police cars. And two days later, come back and say, tomorrow, these are taxi cabs. I mean, that's, you see the same car like ten times. Now. <laughs> may remember that one. Some of you may remember that one. That's a Fast and Furious car. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. All right, back to the church. Um, Involved in the church, a lot of different things going on here. Let me try and speed this up a little bit. Um, when I joined the church and, and spent some time here, I'd never met a minister that cracked jokes, ever. I mean, it's just different here. Um, and somebody had hugged, right? They're, they're different. Uh, there's always handshake at distance kind of thing uh, up north. Um, and as well loved as Malone was. I mean, he really was. Uh, and when I came here, he checked up on me, he called my old minister. And uh, my, I don't know why, my minister vouched for me, so I guess I was okay. <laughs> uh, so I, I've been, uh, been an usher, as, as I mentioned earlier, since 76, uh, and I was very excited to be part of the design team for the new sanctuary. And I worked on the interior. The architects pretty much had what they were going to do, and it was really a nice design. It was a, a thrilling thing. Um, I was also on the board of stewards for 12 years uh, and served on the trustees for a term. Um, and I was also a strong supporter of the Commons land purchase when this was not a popular purchase. Mike will remember that oh, we had yeah. we had we had a meeting. Uh, it was a steward board of stewards meeting, and it was there was a lot of dissent. Nobody wanted to do it, and uh, I put the first thousand dollars in on that, and I think it got the ball rolling because by the time that meeting was over, we already had a pretty good list of people that donated. Anytime you have property in the middle of your site, I tell dealers this all the time, it'll come up for sale one time. You have to buy it. You have to buy it. So that came out pretty nice. Here's a view from the street. And I also did volunteer the design for the original uh, pavilion in there. Uh, it's changed several times. But anyway, it was kind of fun. And I guess it's a, a way to look at how talents can convert to be used in the church. All right. Now we'll talk about some of the other things that are kind of fun. Uh, we've had reunions, we had homecomings, 
And these are some of the cars that, that we brought from the dealership over here. 38 LaSalle, 57 Chevy, 56 T-Bird, 56 Chevy. You see where they're displayed. It's out on the patio out in front of the church. 37 Chevy, 50 Chevy hardtop, uh, 49 Plymouth. It's a early 49. That's out in front of the sanctuary. This is actually at, at one of the, the halls here, 39. Again, in front of the sanctuary, uh, 50 Studebaker. Some of you may remember seeing my ambulance. It's that's a really cool vehicle, and the sirens and everything work on it. And this was the last one we did, where we had a fan. This is right after. Actually, I think it was kind of the commencement of the open field before we did anything more in the commons area. And that's my granddaughter standing there. And this is next door, in front of the oaks. All right, now we're getting close to the end here. Uh, the Methodist hymnal. Now, it's a funny thing about this. Uh, this hymnal, and this this may hit, hit home. I'm, I'm not really sure if it will. Um, but uh, I have a lot of memories of holding one of these with my dad or my mom. It's what we did. No TVs. I mean, you you held the... That was a big deal when you went to church. And your, as your parents got older, the book was shaking and all that kind of stuff. And I know what that's like today. There were three hymns every service. It was not two. There were three. Um, couples sharing a hymnal was a way of faith sharing. It really was. And... Uh, I may, my wife and I may be one of the only people that still do that. And, five. You're one of five. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> a little clarification always is a help. But uh, anyway, last Sunday, uh, Mike, we knew the words. Remember that? Yeah. We, we had a malfunction. Yeah. We had that book, man. We knew what the words. Everybody's going, I love you. Okay. Um, I was both a scoutmaster and chaplain in scouts. And everyone learned three hymns. This was the this was given to me. I mentioned earlier. Um, this is my father's world. Was the number one song that we sang at every camping trip, every camping trip. And I had to, you know, do the uh, the church services. Um, the next one you'll probably recognize for the beauty of the earth, right? That's an, we're trying to pick hymns. And when you go through this book, I mean, the Bible's got all kinds of really interesting stories that you can connect with. This book has even more, in my opinion. If you go through it. You can find a hymn or a group of hymns for every possible event in your life. It's It's been a real source of, uh, of help for me. Anyway, and the last one, How Great Thou Art. And every one of those kids remember that. Um, my son, every time he hears one of those things, he looks at me. You know, He knows what I'm going to say before I say it. And uh, some of the scouts that were in the troop come in and see me in the dealership, and they always mention the, the hymns. Okay, let's uh, briefly say, what were my uh, critical faith challenges? Young marriage, obviously, I didn't say, but it was a rushed marriage, okay? And uh, I really thought life was over at that time. Didn't know where things were going to go, but my parents were very understanding. As adopted parents, I think they expect just about anything, and uh, they they certainly supported me. Uh, birth of both of our children, we all know that... Uh, that time when, the, and of course, they wouldn't let you in, in to watch the birth or be part of me. You're in another room, and you're thinking of everything, but you spend a lot of time praying that everything's going to go on. Uh, juggling schoolwork and family. We all have that problem, and about the only way you can get through it is with your faith. Um, marriage difficulties. I think everybody's got some, had some. Maybe doesn't want to admit it, but, but we had some of those. And then I was juggling graduate school, work and family. doesn't sound like much different. Had to deal with the loss of a job. Only been fired one time. Uh, and it was because they consolidated an office. But 
what was interesting when that happened, the clients I was working with called me the next day and I went to work for them. Uh, that worked out really well. And finding a job. How many of us, and we have a great program here to help people find a job. Um, and growing within the job. That's a challenge. Um, and starting a new business, business is, and probably the most stressful thing I've run into so far, I'm sure there's going to be more, is uh, parental end-of-life situations. I mean, it is tough. And I'm sure you've all been through it, or will if you haven't. Um, I did an interesting thing. I want to show of hands. How many of you wish you had said something or done something that you never got a chance to before your parents passed? It's, it's a common problem. Well, I decided, engineer... And I was going to write each one of them a letter, and not a little letter, a long letter. And as their health declined and they were still able to read it, uh, I said everything I wanted to say, or just about. And uh, it, it meant a lot to them and to me. Uh, dealing with assisted living, whew, uh, I had to do uh, the eulogies for both of my parents. And I, I, was, I was going to do it no matter what. And that's not easy to do. And being a designer, I was asked to design the ultimate as far as they were concerned. I designed their stones. Tough, tough to do. Well, I'm still trying to do as much good as I can, for as many as I can, for as long as I can. My core beliefs. We're all put here for a purpose, but unfortunately most of us spend our whole lives trying to find it. It's so true. We just haven't hit stride, many of us. And uh, um, God wants us to be successful. I love this phrase. He'll provide the food, but he doesn't set the table. You've got to get... You've got to do something for things to work for you. And if you expect it all to drop from the sky, it's going to do that. So with God's help and his guidance and my faith, I've always had jobs that I really love. I've been very fortunate. Um, I have a great family, a good understanding wife, as you might imagine, uh, successful children, grandchildren. I provided incomes for hundreds of employees and impacted the lives of thousands of dealerships, their employees, and their families. It's a really broad scope of things that I was involved in. I was fortunate to discover early, early that I had a God-given talent, and I've tried my best to expand it. So I want you to live a little, come buy a car, and relive a little bit of life as it used to be. I also want to say, uh, Mike, we really appreciate your friendship and all that the RUMC pastoral staff and their concerns for my in-laws during their illnesses. It's really helped us deal with daily changing situations. And thank you all for enduring this talk. If there's any time at your tables, which there might be a couple minutes, I would suggest that you discuss some of the experiences I've had and share some similar life events with the guys at your table. Thank you. Jim, thank you. Okay. You did great. Thank you. Take two or three minutes just to talk around the table as Jim has invited us to do. He's given us a lot to think about. So let's take a couple of minutes and then we'll close out. Okay, I'm going to interrupt our walk down memory lane. Jim, thank you again. That was great. Thank you for sharing. Uh, a couple of reminders. Sunday, two important things happen. The time changes. So we can get to worship early, you know, if, if we forget to set our clocks. 
The other is this Sunday's Commitment Sunday. So as you're praying about it, let's be prepared uh, to come to worship Sunday with our commitments. Uh, anything else that we need? Because Tim usually has some announcements. Anything else that we have? Yes, sir, Barney. The Hospitality Committee is desperately in need of volunteer drivers for our campus ministry in terms of the car drivers. We've lost our car drivers. We're having to pay people to drive cars. We need volunteers to come forward and let Julie Scott know if you're willing to drive a car. If somebody would preach for me, I'd love to <laughs> <laughs> Opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I think it's a shame that we have to pay people to do what is such a fun job. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> Good. All right, anything else that we need? Uh, we all have stories, and Tim would love to hear from us and have us to speak. Uh, most of us don't spend as long as Jim did, did doing his, but he did a great job on it. So appreciate that time you spent. Could we close in prayer? Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you that we're a part of a church that encourages us to reach out to each other. As we leave here today, Lord, help each of us to find new ways to serve you and the people we're around. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Yeah.